to mark where we are and where we're headed in the American story. But I want to start with week two of Advent, the time for preparation on the Corey Truax Show. Angels we have show right here on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts just found out that the week theme for week two of advent is preparation and you went oh oh no i'm i'm pretty pretty bad at that i don't want that to be the the theme of week two and depending on which advent calendar you follow it might be something else but this is in most traditions the week of waiting and preparation i think it's in that uh, towards the night before christmas one of the classic poems for this time there is that line, the, the stockings were hung by the chimney or mantle, I can't remember, uh, the chimney with care. Even there early in this, this poem about anticipation of the season, that there was care given, there was preparations made, and I want to talk about that a little bit, a little bit more deeply than just a poem in just a second. Welcome to the Court Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find more from me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax, you'll find me there. You can also contact the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching, and we meet on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville. If you're without a church home, you are invited. You're probably in the throes of preparation and the waiting. Your kids are just waiting, right? They don't have to do much to prepare. They're just jacked up for Christmas morning. They cannot wait for it to be there. But we prepare. I uh, I made this joke recently, but I, I found being well now married, but a long term adult relationship with a woman is spending about a quarter of your time at Hobby Lobby, and I'm you know what I'm not mad about it. I like that I like that place. I can actually have some. I can make my own fun no matter where I go, including Hobby Lobby, and we have a good time doing it. But we just started getting prepared. We not went out to get some things to adorn the house, prepare the house. For what's coming, we're all in the throes of preparation. We got the Christmas party for Beachwood Church, and I got to go get that gift. We got the office party. There's preparations to make, there's food to make, calendars to keep. We're in the time of preparation for our hope to be fulfilled. Week one is about hope. Week two is how do we wait for our hope to be fulfilled? Well, we're not passive in it, we do act, we prepare for that to be fulfilled. The long-time illustration I've given on the show, I have some extra, some others today I want to tell you, was how when my dad lived overseas when I was younger, my mother's mode of preparation when he was returning was intense. Like, we all had jobs because the father is returning, and we want the place he's returning to to be a really pleasant environment for him. She was awesome for doing that for him, and as now we prepare... For Christmas morning, we're making all these preparations, but it's all supposed to point us up to something better and bigger. Not to a Christmas morning with presents, not to dinner around the table with our families, although that's an incredible gift. We are being pointed towards the return of Christ, and so now we want to prepare for it. Let's do it this way. One of the far too common experiences in life, negative experiences, is to have a promise broken. When you really thought you could trust somebody, when someone really told you they were going to do a given task or they were going to 
give you something they didn't give you. One of the all too often common experiences is the pain and the hurt from a promise broken. What sometimes gets overlooked and what sometimes can feel worse is when the promise is kept, but the result is underwhelming. When the the car that you thought getting would make you happy doesn't quite do it. The vacation you went on wasn't really what you thought. The relationship you were in was, you got it because you thought you wanted it and it wasn't quite that happy. The movie that everyone raved about, that band that was incredible in concert that everyone told you if you go see, it's going to be a great experience and then you watch it and go, meh. It is in those cases, a promise was made. The promise was kept, you had the experience, but it was just really underwhelming. It was deeply unsatisfying. I have managed that with people in my life. Some I'm super close to, some folks maybe I just work with. I've noticed I don't struggle with that. I think because I manage expectations really well, I'm blown away in life when anything goes well. When anything is awesome, I'm blown away because life's hard. It's natural inclination. It's state of being is everything is terrible. It's a fallen world. For anything to be good takes a ton of effort. And so I tend not to struggle with having having promises or, or basically making up a standard for something, how something should be or make me feel, and then be dis- disappointed by it. But I know it's a common experience for a lot of people. I think it was my friend uh, from Beachwood, Adam, said years ago, and this is probably a 15 years ago conversation that stuck with me, that he realized this most around vacations. Even before I became a big fan of Ecclesiastes and really understanding that book, that conversation with just a friend at the church, which should tell you something, by the way, about the value of church, having conversations with random people at church, you're going to learn some things. For him, it was vacations. There's so much anticipation for them, so much preparation for them. The entire calendar for the year in some ways revolves around that week. And then you get there a couple days in and go, okay, I guess this is... This is it. I mean, we did it. We kept the promise and I was just kind of unsatisfied by it. I've had that conversation with folks who really thought getting that car, that's, when we're young, that's what we think it is. When we get that car, I mean, it's awesome for the first month until that person wants that next payment on it, right? We, we, get, over, we get underwhelmed by promises that are kept. You know, I have the opposite example that for the joy of when a promise is made and then kept, and it really is everything you hoped. For uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head. New York City was that for me. I always thought I'd love it. I thought it was going to blow me away. And I believe it was 2015, 14, 15, the first time I got to go. It was everything I could imagine and more. I mean, what an incredible place that the entire world has gathered there. That you can hear five or six languages in a two-block walk. That it's just the marvel of humanity that we were able to put our most magnificent city on a series of islands and it somehow runs okay. It was an incredible place and it never disappoints me every time I go. I remember in a few years ago, my brother from another mother, his name is Shikai, we heard about the concept of a Brazilian steakhouse. They had not quite come to Greenville yet. There, there wasn't one around here, but Charlotte in Uptown had a Brazilian steakhouse. I can't remember the name of it right now. And if you don't know the concept of a Brazilian steakhouse, it makes quite the promise that they will give you a token, uh, like looks like a big coin, and when you have it face up on your table, they will just continue to bring you various meats. And when you turn it over, you can take a break, and you can turn it back over, and they're just going to keep bringing you exotic, incredible meats. And so 
I didn't eat, like, I think I had some eggs for breakfast, and then we didn't eat all day. We got up there for dinner at 5 o'clock. I was highly anticipating this because I'm a protein eater. And I get served lamb, and then one of the most tender steaks I've ever had, and then a different kind of steak. Like, like one was a sirloin, and then one was a, can't remember. It was, it was just endless. And then some exotic things, like this is alligator tail, and or, it, it was an awesome experience. It made a lot of promises to me. And the joy was that it was exactly what I thought. And it was awesome. So we have that all too common experience of promises kept, but they're kept in a way that's underwhelming. It's not what we expected. And then we have those experiences that it, it is exactly what we wanted. And there's so much joy there. We can count on this reality for the Advent season. As we wait and as we prepare... We are preparing for something that's going to blow our wildest expectations away. Whatever imagination you think you have for a new heavens and a new earth, it will be better. Whatever expectations you have for the comfort and the joy, it will be to see Jesus face to face, to be in the presence of your maker again with no fear, no trepidation, no wondering where you stand. Whatever you imagine, it's better. My little, my little pea brain has imagined a new heavens and a new earth with all the people that I love the most that in our redeemed bodies that can do all kinds of cool stuff. I want to I make a, a swim as deep in the ocean as my lungs can take with my newly redeemed eyes and their ability to take in light and see what's down there, the wonders of this world. My little pea-brained imagination imagines actually making it to the top of, uh, I actually can't remember the tallest peak now in the world, but I want to climb that mountain. I don't want to do it in this body, this 36-year-old body. I'm out. I don't know. I have no interest. <laughs> but when this thing's redeemed, when those lungs are redeemed, oh, I want to go. And that that's my, my little bit of imagination. I have a little bit of imagination that maybe we'll be, we'll be creative enough and smart enough that me and the people I love the most, that we can build something to go to outer space, a redeemed outer space, and I want to go far. I want to go see what some of the things that my maker has made. And then those are just the the fun things. Before imagining the great reconciliation, the great coming back together of the saints that have gone before, the stories I want to hear from church fathers, whatever you've imagined that we're preparing for, What we're going to get is better. And so then prepare. Prepare your heart and mind by by longing for those things. Not longing just for Christmas, but for what Christmas represents. Not longing for your next promotion, but for the the, the consummation of all things. Not, Not longing for when your mortgage payments are finished. You can long for all those, but let every longing roll up to what is finally coming when the second advent comes. So that's your theme for the week. We wait. And as we wait, we prepare. We prepare by setting our affections on things above. And as we have affections for things below, we allow those affections to roll up past those things to eternal things. Final two things. I've decided that for these weeks of advent, there's two more. I'm going to give you a scripture of the week and then do a song of the week. And so, let me give you the scripture for the week. I think this is a good time to go ahead and read Luke 2. I I know that's the 
and the one everyone reads on Christmas that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and everyone went to be taxed in his own city. When I was in second grade at Hampton Park, they made us uh, memorize that entire chapter. It was actually kind of awesome. Maybe we should start doing that again. Anyway, there's a great part of Luke 2 here that I want you to focus in on if you read it. That we can prepare all we want, but behind the scenes more than we probably recognize, God is preparing for his return. He prepared the first advent by manipulating the heart of a king, the heart of a a ruler, to call for a census. Because we know the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. And the Messiah was in the womb far from Bethlehem. The Lord prepared that. It was a prophecy that this this boy, this this Messiah would not just be born in Bethlehem, but would would be a very humble beginnings. That his... That usually the coming of the king comes with a herald with just piercing the sky. And instead of a herald piercing the sky with the noise of the proclamation of a king, it was a baby's cry piercing the night that was declaring the king has come. He was supposed to come from these humble beginnings. And the Lord sovereignly made the inn full. The Lord sovereignly placed a star in the sky so that the Magi might visit him. The Lord prepared that the angels would send shepherds to go spread the news. So as we prepare, we can rest in the reality that the Lord is preparing the way before him, just as he did the first time. He he is preparing his way now to return again. And in that vein, I just want to read to you now uh, the song of the week for us, which is going to be, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That's a double entendre. It's the, yes, the song of wanting him to come at that first Christmas, but it's now our longing for him to come again. I'm just going to read you a couple lines here from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I believe the original was by Charles Wesley. There's lots of uh, versions out there now, but the original Charles Wesley says this. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, by the way, we're, we are Israel, everyone in Christ is Israel. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. There's a great versions out there. Let me encourage you, listen to that this week. Dwell on its meaning. Read some Luke 2. And as we wait for our hope to be fulfilled, let's prepare our hearts for it. Not just preparing our houses and our tables and our gifts. We're preparing our hearts and minds for the coming of the King. When we return, we're going to take a hard turn into some stories I saw this week that gives us, I think, a bit of a report card of where we are as a people in the United States of America and where we're headed. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. If you are like... Most of your countrymen, assuming you're listening to me from the United States of America, your outlook on the future is probably a bit pessimistic. I'm about to confirm for you your suspicions might be true, but we will never be without hope. I will offer some kind of solution towards the end of the discussion. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Find me, Corey Truax, your host, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, but not on the Ticker Talkers or the Snapper Chatters because I'm a grown man and I don't belong there. Where else can you find me? Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. 
Merry Christmas, Happy Advent from all of us at His Radio Talk. I saw three stories in a row, uh, within an hour of each other, and it crystallized for me into a narrative that I want to share with you about where, where we are as a people group. So we'll start here. There's a group out there called Truth Over Tribe. I mostly like them. I think they go a little too far sometimes in some of their political analysis. But their idea here is we're a very tribal people, and we are. We've kind of broken up into, like, we're not a country anymore. We don't have any kind of patriotism or fealty towards one another from being from the same country. We've broken up into warring tribes, like thousands of years ago on this continent. Those tribes just happen to be ideological, maybe lifestyle in a lot of ways. But they did a really interesting show with a demographer who is looking at the generational shift when it comes to faith. So just to give uh, some numbers here, an example. The categories available to people when self-identifying in this study, which was thousands of people, thousands of people in the study, you can declare yourself to be Protestant, Catholic, another world religion, so it's going to be Jew or Muslim, atheistic, nothing in particular, or just other. So that nothing in particular is that rising group we've heard about in demography called the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. They, just, they don't say they, they're not saying they don't believe in anything, they just don't believe in anything in particular. They have no, no interest in defining what they think about metaphysics and ultimate reality. So those are your six things you can identify as. For the silent generation, so that's people in their 80s and up, the oldest of Americans, 50% say they're Protestant. Another 22% say they're Catholic. So 72% are part of the two faiths. I think that, well, Judaism, and 6% say other world religions. So if you add all that up, that's 78% of our oldest Americans say they are adherents to one of the faiths that shaped the Western world and the ideas and the values that shaped the Western world into what it is today, the Western world that gave birth to human rights and individual liberty, the the dignity of every human. And now they ask the same question of boomers, baby boomers, so that's going to be people about 60 to 80, Gen Xers, millennials, and then the youngest among among us, Gen Z, so that's going to be teens and into your mid-20s. And you can just see, all the way down, they get smaller and smaller on calling themselves Protestant and Catholic. So I'll just give you the numbers. 50% of silent generation said Protestant, 41% of boomers, 32% of Gen Xers, 24% of millennials, 22% of Gen Z. So you you are living in a country where the 40 and under crowd, one quarter, would say they're a Christian of Protestant uh, persuasion. The Catholics have oddly had strong staying power. The oldest group is 22%. It only dropped to 14% in Gen Z. And so it's been smaller. That group's been smaller the entire time. One-fifth now down to, I guess, one-sixth of the country. But can you see that precipitous drop from the oldest Americans being 50 and 41% Protestant to the youngest Americans being 24 and 22% Protestant? Now look around your country. Are you surprised at what you see? Are you surprised at the perversion? Are you surprised at the corruption? Are you surprised at what's on your television and what's in books and what's popular? The effect of Christianity has plummeted. 
And the group that has grown has not particularly been the atheists, the agnostics. They've been about the same. They got a little bit bigger from 8% to about 11%. It's the nuns. So people did not convert away from Christianity into atheism. They converted from any kind of structured faith, and that's a good thing, by the way, people that say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. That's not quite right. It is a religion. It has sacraments. It has doctrines. It has statements of faiths and creeds. It's not just a relationship with Jesus. It is that, and then it's more than that as well. It is the religion that he imparted to us in the church. In the silent generation crowd, the oldest Americans, only 10% said they had nothing in particular. They were a nun. But for Gen Z millennials, it's 30 and 31%. So one-third of the under-40 crowd. That's is where the growth was. The growth, what has changed in America, generationally, is that folks who were practicing Christianity didn't start practicing atheism. They started practicing some kind of paganism, is what I would call it, but it's a paganism of the self. The religion of the nun is the religion of the self. It's the worship of one's own feelings, desires, self-actualization, self-identity, feeling good about oneself. That's the religion of being a nun. So that was the first story I saw, the rapid secularization. That happened in a, call it two or three generations, but we're talking about it happening in a group of time that one person could be alive. I mean, you could, you could have been born 80 years ago, and you were born into a thoroughly Christianized country where it was super normal to believe Christian things. Like, oh, say it this way. You could have just, heck, you could have been born 40 years ago, and you were born into a world that would have said, divorce is bad. We should discourage it every way we can. And if you're in a hard marriage, you should stay for your kids, and you should stay because society itself depends on it. Your marriage isn't just about you. It is the civilizing institution of a people group. Marriage is awesome. Do it. Do it young. Stay in it. You could have been born 40 years ago, and you'd have been born into a world that would have said, yes, our churches are important institutions. It's important to be a part of one locally. You would have been born into a world just 40 years ago that said, yes, our schools need to impart religious values and morals. Yes, our art, our movies should have in them, especially for younger kids, the values of honesty. And Instead of being specific, let me just say, the values of Judeo-Christian morality, yes, all that's true. And of course, 40 years ago, you would have been born into a world that said, there is no such thing as anything other than men and women. That's the only thing that exists. There is no middle, and there is no transitioning between the two. Continuing that, 40 years ago, you could have been born into a world that just said, sex is for marriage alone. That's whether that's being practiced or not 40 years ago, we would have been saying it out loud and there would have been shame. That's good. Shame is an important tool for a, for a country and a, and a civilization. There would have been shame for those openly practicing fornication. That's the word for it. And in just one lifetime, and if you were only born 40 years ago, you're relatively a young person. you got a lot of years left. In one lifetime, you could have seen that world that I just described become the world of a set of young people that say one fifth of them say I I don't I don't know if I'm gay or straight I'm some like I'm I'm queer one fifth talk about social contagion you, in one lifetime you could have seen the the celebration of 
any kind of sexuality, because you are the center of the universe, just whatever pleases you is the, is the good sexual behavior. You have come into a world that doesn't say, yes, it's good that we would have Christian values. You switched all the way from, yes, it's good to have Christian values, to the Christian values are the thing oppressing all of us, and they must be destroyed. It was a rapid secularization, secularization of the country. It happened quickly. That was story one I saw about where we are. Then there's more on where we are. So that world that tossed Christianity to worship itself, what has it brought us? And we could go through lots of stats here on what it's brought us with our collective misery, and our, our mental health situation, our broken families, our collective debt that... I mean, the higher, we have a higher debt-to-income ratio than we did 40 and 50 years ago. I mean, then you talk about government debt, corruption in the government. There's just, it, it has wrought many bad things, but let me take you to one stat from, uh, this looks like it was 3,000 3, children that were polled with this question. They were 8 to 12 years old, 8-year-old to 12-year-old, 3,000 asked in America, in the UK, and in China. If you could only be one of these five things when you grow up, what do you want to be? The five options are astronaut, teacher, professional athlete, musician, or YouTuber. Those are your five options if you're eight years old, nine years old in America, the UK, and China. What do you want to be? In China... Astronaut came in number one, not close. Fifty, uh, that's, yeah, fifty-two percent. Next was teacher, then musician, which does, by the way, not imply here fame, not imply big artist, just musician. It doesn't, it does not give the child an indication that you're going to be famous doing it, but you get to you get to play music professionally. There's a lot of people that do that and aren't hugely famous. Their number four response, a professional athlete, and at the very, very bottom with just 11% saying it, would want to be a YouTuber. That's China. That, now we're going to look at the UK and the US. A rapidly secularizing West, tossing off Christianity. Coming in last in both countries, astronaut. Number four, musician. Number three, professional athlete. Number two, teacher. And coming in at number one with a full one-third of our youth, one-third of our eight to 12-year-olds saying, what do you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? YouTuber. Our rapid secularization has cost us a lot, but it's also cost our kids any kind of imagination for achievement. It's a very common answer even when you open the doors for more than just those five jobs. The kids aren't aiming to be lawyers, doctors, astronauts, software engineers. There's a lot that just say, I'll, I'll just assume a small amount of fame on YouTube. Can I amass that to myself? Actually, I think, not all of you watch The Office, but stick with me. I think it's one of the most profound parts of The Office. Near the end of that show... One of the characters, Andy Bernard, just gets obsessed with wanting to be famous. And he gets he ends up getting famous for being one of the people that go on a show like American Idol 
and is very bad and melts down. But in the next episode, I think it's actually the final episode of the entire show, he says, um, I have decided to quit what he was doing and just pursue fame of any kind. His entire, what's his entire purpose? I just want to be famous. For what? It doesn't matter. I just got to be famous. We've, as we have dropped Christianity and its calls to higher things, calls to humility, calls to meet calls to meaning in what you mean to building a family and just having your duties to your countrymen to your church folk to your actual family to to a woman or to a man to your kids as we have robbed people from the meaning Christianity gives they're going to fill it with something and in the western world we filled it with ultimately some meaningless fame and so where we've been is this rapid secularization and moving away from Christianity. Where we are is that we have bred into our kids this vapid, meaningless life of looking for YouTube fame, which I, th- I think then I saw this other story that tells us where we're going. You know who's ahead of us in secularization who became less Christian faster than we did? Canada. You can often look north of the border, see what's happening up there, and you can sometimes see where we're headed. Maybe you have seen, it's becoming a kind of a controversy up in Canada, that their uh, system called Medical Assistance in Dying, the acronym is MADE, that their euthanasia system, MADE, is expanding who they will kill. Their country is expanding who they're willing to euthanize. Because when you imagine euthanasia, when you imagine Oregon and what, they're, what they've done, the, the right to die laws, it's always someone who is certainly on their deathbed. You imagine a very, a very, very sick person or a very, very old person who's right at the end and they just help them along. Don't assume that over in, over in Canada. We, got, we now have video, if you want to go out there and look for it, of doctors encouraging non-terminal patients to you know, call, call the medical assistance and dying people and just see what your options are. We have actual intellectuals in Canada, professors, saying things like one of the, one of the options for homelessness and those who struggle with it and the mental illnesses that cause their homelessness is one of the things they should consider is get is not anti-anxiety and anti-depression medicines. I actually saw one of them say this. It's not to get to get on your anti-anxieties like Valium and Xanax. The the answer for some people is to take these other pills that are going to kill you. And I I, I read the headline and didn't believe what I'm about to tell you. But here's how far it's gotten in Canada, a place because they are more secular than we are. They've given up Christianity faster than we have. They have embraced humanism and human happiness as the chief concern on the planet, more than we have, but we're headed that way. This is how far it's gone for them. This is a quote from the Canadian Pediatric Society's new document on the topic of medical assistance in dying. And you just heard what I said, pediatric, right? This is Canadian child medicine. They are addressing in their new document, uh, quote, the need to examine requests for and attitudes around made, medical assistance and dying, 
for minors of all ages, including infants. Here's your quote. Canadian healthcare professionals are increasingly being approached by the parents of, quote, never competent, end quote, infants and children, including those too young to make a reasoned decision. They're also being approached by youth themselves to discuss maid-related issues. Results from a Canadian pediatric surveillance programs survey discussed below indicate that parents raise these questions with pediatricians more often than minors do. In the foreseeable future, parents may challenge healthcare decisions in court on the ground that continued life is not in the child's best interest. There's also in the same document, exploring guidance for how children, they're, they're calling them, this is very Orwell, Orwellian, mature minors. So they're under 18, but they're mature. How they might choose, and under what grounds they can choose to die, and their parents can't stop them. There's an incredible story out there right now, if you want to go look for it. Daily Wire has it, several other outlets do. Of a guy around my age, who because of diabetes, is losing his sight, and he's just so depressed about it and can't handle it, he, he started the process, and he was approved. Like they were, he ended up not doing it. But Canada was willing to let this guy just kill himself through a government, like a government-funded and a government-approved process. Yeah, you're, you're, you have diabetes, you're going to go blind? Yeah, you should die. If you want to die, you can die. We'll, we'll help you do it. I know where we've come from. We came from secularization that was so rapid we have given up all the values of Christianity, one of its core values being humans are made in the image of God and they matter. We know where we are. We've created a generation that is so empty it's only looking for fame. And we can look north about where we might be going. That might, for some of you, be super dark. and I, it is, It's dark for me. But here's where the, it, it all comes down to for me. A people group is ultimately governed in a lot of way by all of its institutions, not just its, its politicians. The people who run businesses, the medical, the, the sciences, the medical academies, education, universities, arts and entertainment. Those are institutions that have to be made up by people. People make those. And so all of these terrible things happening that you, you just heard in Canada, it's because the people who made them are terrible. They need renewal and redemption. And if we, as the church and, and Christians, if we are not about the work of renewal and redemption in this culture, it's only going to get darker. We, we, man, in America, we do everything bigger. We, we have no idea how dark we can be. We're going to blow Canada out of the water for how dark a people we can be, if not for renewal and redemption. That must start in the church purification in the church, clarity on in the church on what we're here to do, and then we can go out and change a people who will eventually lead then businesses, medical academies, educational institutions, universities, who we elect, who makes our art. I, I, I just see the stories of where we've come from, where we are and where we're going. And no, where we're going is going to be quite dark if the church does not fix itself and then faithfully go out and proclaim the gospel to renew what is becoming a rotten place. I know that's dark, guys, but there's, there's solution, there's hope. It starts in the church. And if, I mean, I, I'm surprised more and more at how often I talk to people who seem to have, seem to have vibrant 
Christian lives seem to know a lot of Bible and are not involved in local churches. I can, I can tell you this. You, you won't make an impact outside of a local church. We're going to have to disciple each other. We're going to have to insulate our kids and teach them tr- actual truth that comports itself to reality and not with the insanity the world is teaching them. We're going to need the local church to do any of that. So I know I just painted a very negative picture to you, but I am giving you a clarion call for how to go about renewal, and that is the means of grace God has given us. Find a local church, get in there. We have a lot of work to do. When we come back, I found a, I listened to a really interesting lecture about our media diet and what we consume. I want to share that with you when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show on His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. It's this time of year that you end up in a lot of social situations where sometimes you just feel like you have nothing to say, nothing to talk about. I never find myself in that situation because I listen to too much content and I always have something I want to tell people about. I have one of those for you in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. If you would be so kind, you can email the show at Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com with your thoughts, your responses, stories you see that also need to be covered, things you want to talk about, get an opinion on, or give yours out. It's highly appreciated when you do. One of those things I recently listened to was a lecture from a guy named Brett McCracken. He wrote a book back in 2017 that I forgot the name of, but his lecture was basically a summary of the book. So I got a summation of his book. And in that book, the, the big payoff is that he created something called the Wisdom Pyramid. How, how do we go about being wise? Not how do we go about attaining knowledge and retaining knowledge, just getting smart. How do we become wise? It's one of the themes of the entire scriptures, but certainly in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, is how, where does a young man go, where does a young woman go to get wisdom? And what he found, as he researched, was our, our media diet as Americans, and especially in the church, it's making us stupid. We go to all the wrong resources for our wisdom. So what he built for us was a wisdom pyramid. It's based on the old food pyramid. If you didn't know, that thing's done. Like the FDA and those people got rid of the food pyramid a long time ago because it is actually pretty bad nutritional advice. But if you remember, they would say things like, at the bottom of the pyramid, the biggest stack of it, I hope I remember this right, or I learned it as a kid, it was things like bread and cereal, rice, pasta. You should have six to 11 servings per day of those things, (laughs) which is quite the... It's quite broad. But by the way, no, you shouldn't. That's a lot of carbs. You shouldn't have that much. That's a lot. And the next group up was like two or three servings both of fruit and vegetables. It's not a bad idea. And a little, little further up, it was instead of, uh, it was like one to two servings. I don't remember this exactly, but of meat and fish or eggs, milk. They're saying like at the bottom, have a lot of bread and cereal. Have a little bit less vegetables and fruits. Have a little bit less dairy, and then I remember at the top of the food pyramid, because it was so so discouraging as a kid, it was fats, oils, and sugars, the things that you love the most. And if I recall correctly on that food pyramid, it did say, use sparingly. So it's not giving you even a servings per day count. The old food pyramid said, have a certain number of breads and 
pasta and rice. Have a certain amount of vegetables and fruits every day. Have a certain amount of dairy. But if you could just stay off sugars, fats, and oils altogether, that'd be great. All the best things in the world, sugars, fats, and oils. Or at least it's how it seems when you're a kid. And so he used that same concept and did that for wisdom. So here, let me walk you through it. I think it's, man, there's a lot of brilliance here. And if we would dwell on it and be convicted by it, we, we could be a people that might become wise. At the bottom of his pyramid, the thing that we should get the most of, where we get the most of our thinking, the thing where we should get formed the most, the bottom of the pyramid is the Bible. Our daily bread, the place we go maybe more than once a day, but the place we get most of our wisdom is just go to Scripture. Makes good sense to me. The maker of humanity, the maker of the earth, has told us a lot about his design for humans, his designs for institutions, the church, governments, uh, arts. He's told us a lot about who we are and how to live life in the world that he made. He gave us almost like an instruction manual in some ways. That's not what the Bible is, but in some ways it can be applied that way. Go to the Bible first, more than you go to anything else. Get the Bible's take for wisdom. The next level up, what do you get a little bit less of but still important. He marks it as the local church and church tradition. So in your local church, you get to interact with older, wiser people who might know some more Bible. You get the continuity of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Accountability. You get the continuity of accountability. You get proximity where you're up, up against other people. Like I I told you earlier in the show, a conversation that stuck with me for almost 20 years with uh, with a friend at church uh, that was meaningful about how vacations never keep their promise. And that's how, how a lot of life is. There's regularity to it because there's a rhythm. You end up going to the same place once a week with the same people. And you learn not just Bible at your church, which is very important, but you learn the collective wisdom of other people in their Bibles Hopefully in your church, you're going to learn the collective wisdom of the historic church. You're going to hear about the church calendar. You're going to understand why baptisms and the, the Lord's table play, play a role in your life and how they, re, how they recenter you and get you to focus on, on the right things. So get most of your wisdom from the Bible. Live there the most. Eat that the most. Get that the most in your media diet for wisdom. And then get it from the church. One level above that. So you're going to use this less in the church. You're going to use this next one less in the Bible. You are going to use it. And that's nature and beauty. I love that he put this one where it did, especially when you see what's going to be next. There's so much wisdom to be gained in nature. I'm I'm hoping to get back out to that. I used to do it all the time. I was on a hike every week. It does something to you. Just to get away from your phone. Get away from noise. Move your body to get, the, to get that feeling of your lungs pumping air, your heart pumping blood, and just seeing the wisdom of the wisdom of nature. I think a lot of folks out on the farms get this. They understand birth better than we do because they see so many animals. They, they understand and process death better than we do because there's so many animals, they have to go through it. You stop and you pause and you see how this interconnected world is actually very intricate and God is incredible to design it this way. I may not even know what I'm looking at, but I can see that 
the birds are doing their thing for the ecosystem. I don't even know what that is. That the, the bugs are doing their thing. That the, what the squirrels are doing what they're supposed to do. And it's this thing that no human is doing, but it's beautiful to watch. To get out in nature and find wisdom that that, I think it does two great things for me to take me out of being the center of the universe. Because you go out and see beautiful things and you recognize, even if no human ever saw it, whether I saw it or not, this waterfall was going to flow to the glory of God. There, I suspect there are beautiful things on the earth even right now that no human has seen. And they have been beautiful for millennia and God is the only one that's gotten to enjoy them. You get up to a tall, tall place, you get to look out over a beautiful view, and whether any person ever climbed that mountain and saw that view, it was going to be there for the glory of God because he is the center of all things. There's wisdom in that, that I'm not the center of the world. You get gratitude for getting to feel small. The the weight of the world is not on my shoulders, it's on God's shoulders, and nature will do that. And not just nature, he puts in here nature and beauty. Because I think if you create art, if you make your own or you take it, you take a good art in, you are training your mind to quit being so ADD. You're having to observe and be attentive to what you're doing in a very ADD time because of what our phones have rewired our brains. I know it's rewired mine. But even that, that idea to observe beauty because beauty is objective. Even while this world tells you it's subjective, we, we tend to all agree on what's the beautiful thing. That, that, that points us up. That points us towards eternity. So get most of your wisdom from the Bible, a little bit less of your wisdom as we build the pyramid up, but so get a lot of it from the church and church tradition, then get it from nature and beauty, then one other level up, books. Some of you might chafe at that and go, oh no, books should be more important than nature and beauty. I don't think so. If you're getting the the Bible as your primary book for wisdom, general revelation, what the Lord shows us in nature and with beauty itself, will build more wisdom than a book will. That does not denigrate books, though. Read the old stuff. Read read the new thoughts of people. Get a, a a deeper dive. I would put in here books as well, podcasts. I mean, I've admitted this to you several times. I used to be embarrassed by it. I'm just going to stop being embarrassed by it. I, I don't read much anymore. But I listen to a lot of spoken word, lectures, podcasts, storytelling. And there's, there's apps like Blinkist who will summarize a book for you in 15 minutes. Or I will read, yeah, listen to the lecture for one hour of a guy who wrote an entire book. And I would argue in that one hour, you can, you can get and retain the most important parts of the book that he wrote. So get into the books. So start with the Bible, then the church, nature, and beauty, and then books, then one level up. We're almost at the top of the pyramid. He calls it generally the internet. So that's things like, sure, Google and Wikipedia, maybe find some trusted sources for information, get good recommendations from wise people on what parts of the internet you go to for information. But you're now here at the very top, like you're on that part of the pyramid that would be dairy and meats. Yeah, have these. But don't have too much. Make sure you go back to the core to find your wisdom. And then here's how it, everything's inverted. The top of the pyramid, where the food pyramid would say, use these sparingly. Your oils, your fats, your sugars, use it sparingly. Don't get wisdom from there. Don't go there. Don't get health from there. The wisdom pyramid at the top is social media. Find a way to learn to live without it. 
if you do have too much of it, just like sugar and oils and fats, it is bad for your health physically, mentally and emotionally, but actually physically too, because your mental and emotional state will affect your physical body. I mean, we, we turned on the social media deluge 15 years ago and didn't know what we were doing to our brains, and it's too much. Get less wisdom from social media. The same way that our bodies, our physical bodies will suffer if we ingest the wrong amount of sugars and dairies and carbs. If we ingest too much social media and internet as opposed to Bible and church and nature, we're going to get sick. I think I illustrated to you in the last segment, we're sick. It's a sick people. We're sick mentally, we're sick emotionally, we're sick spiritually. And I, th- I think it's in lar- it is in large part because we have inverted this pyramid. We go to the most shallow place, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube. We go there for wisdom first. It's the core, the basis of our information. And then we might fact check our social media by other internet sources. And if we want to get a little deeper, we might pull out a book and see what the book says. And we haven't been, by that time, we haven't been outside in forever to just find some objective reality and beauty. We might get to church for that one hour on a Sunday to ask some wise person about that thing we saw on social media and then, and then looked at internet in the book about. And then finally, maybe, we find ourselves with our, our nose in a Bible to check all that wisdom we got from social media against the actual timeless word of God. So I want to end there today. It's a, it is a really good uh, lecture. You can find it at the Gospel Coalition about this wisdom py- pyramid. And I'm going to endeavor to practice what I preach here and get most of my wisdom from the Bible and then the church, then nature and beauty, then some books, and then finally using sparingly the internet and social media. Merry Christmas, Happy Advent from all of us here at His Radio Talk. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.